All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good, good day to be in church. If we haven't met before, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor of this church that we call Anastasis. I'm really, really grateful you're here. Thank you for making it in. You came through the elements. It's awesome. I really, really appreciate it. I was told that like that path would be cleared by the city, but you never know. You know, like they'll probably get to it. We'll come out. It'll be perfect. But it's, they're busy. They got a lot going on. So I thank you for just making your way in through the slippery surface. It means a lot to us that you'd make it here today. If it's your first time with us, I just want to say welcome. Welcome. I hope you're enjoying your experience so far. I hope you feel welcome. I hope you know that you matter. I hope that you know that you matter to us, but more importantly, that you matter to God. That God loves you so much. And we're going to talk about that more today, but he loves you so much. Like, I can't articulate it. My words won't do a good enough job, but he sent his son Jesus to die for you. He wants you to know him. He desires you to know him. And that's what this Christmas season is all about. Like, it's all about us celebrating the fact that God sent his son to earth so that we could have life life and life everlasting, that we could know our Savior, that we can know our God. We could have a relationship with him that it wouldn't be this distant relation where we'd be separated from him, but we'd have this close, intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. So I'm so excited you're here. I hope you know you matter. I hope you feel like you can belong. It's going to be um, a really, really good day, I believe. As we jump in, we're in week three of this message series called The Gift. And um, we got a gift a few months ago, a couple months ago now, um, it was like picture day at school. And so um, we sent our daughter to school. Listen, the way we sent her to school and the way she looked in those photos were like wildly different. Like, I don't know what happens in the first three hours of school, but it was unbelievable. So we get her photos back and I'm not lying. My daughter, she's like, I got my pictures back and she's got this big smile on her face. I was like, yeah. And she goes, check these out. Like, so I look at them and I'm not lying. They're like some of the worst school photos that you could ever see. Like they're just so bad. And my daughter is beautiful. She's such a beautiful little girl. And these just like, they don't even, I don't know. It doesn't even look like her. And so I'm like, man, your hair is in nine directions and you're not even really smiling. I'm like trying to figure it out. Like, do I call them and be like, did you look at this before you just sent her on her way to the next kid? Like, like, this is pretty amazing. But we were like, no, no, it's good. They have picture retake day. They have picture retake day. So we're like, okay, saved by the bell, right? Like, it's going to be okay. We spent all this money on school pictures, but it's fine because we'll get them redone at picture retake day. There's no way she's going to have two bad picture days, right? Wrong. Okay, so she comes home, second one, and she goes, she, no joke, she hands them to us, and she goes, look at these ones. Like, she's so excited, she hands them to us. And I'm like, oh, baby girl, those are so good, you know? And I'm just lying, and my voice just keeps getting higher. And I'm like, this is the best, you know? And, um, and I'm looking at her, and I'm like, and she says this to me, and at first I'm thinking, how on earth has this happened twice in a row? And she goes, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about what face am I going to do this time? And I went, no. That is not what these are for. <laughs> but, so my wife said, we got to frame both of them and stick them up just on the walls. They're amazing. They're incredible. And we are. We've got two really decent-sized packets of horrendous school photos. And I was, at one point, I was like, did they even look at this? And then I realized, I think my daughter planned this. Like, I think she really thought this through. She strategized. How can I make goofy faces? But it is kind of a gift, right? Because I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at these photos, and I'm going to be able to actually remember these kind of stories. If it's just a perfect photo that looks really, really good, I, I might not actually remember anything from it. 
but there's a detail in it, right? There's a funny face. There is almost this like thing that you can't forget now. I'll never forget this story. I'll never forget these moments. And I think about this because there are things that happen in our life that affect us forever. Things that happen in our lives that just affect us forever. And the promise of Jesus coming to earth to the Israelites was a promise that affected them forever. It was a promise given to Abraham. Hey, I'm going to make your line great. And through your line, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the world. And that was something they never forgot. It was something they held on to dearly. This promise of a Messiah that was going to show up. The only problem was when he showed up, they didn't recognize it. They didn't see it for what it was. My hope and my prayer is, as people of as followers of Jesus, as people of God, that we would take these moments in our life that God grants us and that God gives us, and we would say, God, help us to see you in them. Help us to see what you are saying to us and help us to remember it. So as we step forward, we'd have the right eyes, the right vision, the right perspective to see what it is that you're doing. We're going to talk about that a little bit today as why Jesus came as we look at week three of the gift. Before we jump in, let's just go ahead, let's pause, let's pray together, and we'll go ahead and get started. Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you. You're just so good and you're so faithful. Lord, I pray right now, um, Lord, that you just inhabit this space, Lord, in a way that just makes us um, just aware of your presence, God. We know that you're near. We know that you're always with us. But Lord, I just pray that our focus would be on you. Um, Lord, I pray over the words I'm about to speak. Father, I pray that they would be the ones that you want spoken. Lord, omit the words from my vocabulary you don't want spoken today. Lord, I pray that only your message would be heard today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So we're going to jump in. Last week, we talked about Jesus as king. We looked at the gift of gold that the wise men brought Jesus. And we talked about how there are three responses in scripture and in our lives to Jesus as king. The first response is opposition. Opposition. Herod opposed Jesus as king. What was his response when he heard that Jesus was the newborn king, potentially what he thought was coming for his throne? His response was, well, I got to get rid of all of the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. He executed all of the boys two years old and under. He opposed Jesus as king. And in our world today, it probably won't look exactly like that, but it might look like, hey, I don't need religion. I don't need God. I don't need that. I'm fine on my own. Just let that stay over there. That's not what I need. I can control my own life. I want to control my own life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. I'm going to oppose God. The next response that we saw was dismissal. The Jewish priests are talking to Herod. He asks them, where is this king supposed to be born? They tell him, in Bethlehem. They quote scripture from, that was prophesied about where Jesus was going to be born at. And they don't go and worship him. They don't go. It's five or six miles away. And they're just like, eh, we got better things to do. Like, I'm not really going to do that. It's, it's not something I need to do. And in our day and age, in our lives, it might play out like, hey, I really like that story. I like the idea of Jesus. But I just, it's not really for me. Like, don't mess with my life too much. It's okay. Like, it's good. I don't, like, hate God. He's fine. But I just don't know that I really want a lot of influence from God in my life. And the last response that we see is worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. The wise men bowed low to Jesus. They saw him as king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The highest form of worship is to bring ourselves low in surrender and in submission to God. And my hope and my prayer is that we'd be a group of people who bow low, that worship God. We bring ourselves in surrender and submission to him. And so we're going to continue in this story today. We're going to look at the third gift. We're in week three. Look at the third gift that the wise men brought. And to do that, we're going to open up to Matthew 2, and we're going to look at 9 through 13 to start today. 
If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. If not, the, word, the uh, scriptures will be on the screen behind me. But it starts out this way. It says, after listening to the king, they're talking to Herod, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. This is amazing. They rejoice exceedingly, like overflowing. They have joy, so much joy. They cannot believe what they get to be a part of. They cannot believe the moment they're at. They're not there on the night of Jesus's birth, right? This takes place about 18 months to two years following the birth of Christ. And so here are these wise men bowing down to a little toddler, an 18-month-old Jesus. He has them bowing down to him, worshiping him because of his divine identity as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And it says that they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I can't help but see this picture of an 18-month-old Jesus, these grown men bowing down. They open their treasures and they offer him these three important and really significant gifts. We have Christmas coming up in my house. I'm not sure if I offered my children gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they'd understand the value. I'm sure that my children and baby Jesus don't have a whole lot in common at this point in their life. But what I do when I see that picture, I can't help but laugh and go, man, if I was two years old, I'd be like, that's interesting things, you know? But there is a real divine purpose behind these gifts. First, gold, it represents the kingship of Jesus. We talked about it last week. But when they, hand, when they offer the gold, they're symbolizing that Jesus is king. Then they offer the frankincense. It's a very expensive yet practical gift. It was help, it used to help treat sicknesses and wounds. And it really symbolized the priestliness of Jesus. We talked about that in week one, that as the priests would go in and they would make sacrifices, they would burn the incense, the frankincense, it would rise up as the smoke would rise, it would symbolize the prayers of the people rising to God. And myrrh, what we're going to talk about today, was a valuable gum-like substance. It's mentioned 17 times in scripture. It was occasionally used like in combination for to be like a painkiller. Jesus on the cross, while he was hanging there, was offered wine mixed with myrrh to help dull the pain. But Jesus rejected that because he wanted to bear the full force and the weight of our sins. They offer it to him. He rejects that opportunity. But most commonly in their culture, it was known as an ingredient to embalm the dead. And this would symbolize the burial of Jesus that was to come. Myrrh would have been used to prepare Jesus's body when he gave his life on the cross. And so as we continue today, we're going to hone in on that, on the representation that the gift of myrrh offers as Jesus, our suffering servant, Jesus, the lamb of God who was slain for the, for the sins of the world. Jesus, a servant like no other. And in order to do this, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage. You probably didn't think you're going to come to church on the Sunday before Christmas, and we're going to open up an Old Testament passage, but we are, because it's really, really important. As we look at this, Isaiah 53, he describes how Jesus is our suffering servant. This is an Old Testament prophetic passage, I believe, that helps illuminate how Jesus was born to take on the suffering and the punishment of our sin. And when I use that word prophetic, prophetic just literally means to be spoken about or predicted before it happened. Um, as we jump in, show of hands, who's seen the Back to the Future movies? 
Back to the Future movies. Okay, good amount of people in the room. This will make sense here in just a second. Some of you are looking at me like, where is he going? Um, in the second movie, Biff, one of the characters, goes back 30 years, and he takes this sports almanac with him, and he hands it to his younger self. And he's like, you'll know what to do with it, basically. And he goes back and he does that because he wants his younger self to be able to predict the outcomes of horse races, World Series events, make sports bets, and become incredibly rich. Guess what? It happens. It does work because he's got all of the answers. And so it's this amazing situation, right? He's able to predict all the outcomes of all these sport events. And in today's day and age, in this culture, if that were to happen, somebody were able to do that and without the answer key, We'd be like, that is amazing. They just always know. They just always know which teams are going to be in. They just always know. How do they know? Let's add an extra caveat to this. What if they were able to predict it 700 years before it happened? 700 years before it happened, and they were right. That's essentially what happens here with Isaiah. He has this prophetic word given to him by God 700 years before Jesus is ever born, And he's explaining why Jesus came and how Jesus is our suffering servant and what he would endure on our behalf. I think it's miraculous. I think it's amazing. I love it. When you read scripture with this lens, the wonder and the majesty and the miraculous nature that it possesses, I don't think we can help but want to jump in, dive in, because so many of these stories are absolutely miraculous. They're amazing. So I can't believe we get to read it. I love it. It's something that I'm really, really grateful for. It's been preserved for as long as it has, that we can come into a space like this, read God's word, and be able to like store it in our hearts, process it, and realize what God has done through it. And so let's jump in. Isaiah 53. He starts out and he says, all we like sheep. We're going to look at verse 6 to start. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What does he call us? He says, all of us are like sheep. We're like sheep. I want to let you know something as we get started. That is not a compliment. That is not a compliment from Isaiah. He doesn't say, all we like lions, all we like bears, like all of us who are so majestic and powerful and at the top of the food chain. No, no, no. He says, all we like sheep. And I really wish we would have been the other ones, but he's got a reason for that. He's essentially saying, hey, listen, we're not the sharpest tools in the shed, okay? We are not the brightest crayons in the box. That's just not who we are. He calls us sheep. Sheep are weak. Sheep are not the brightest. Sheep are defenseless. They wander. Sheep are cute. Yes, sheep are cute. I, listen, my kids love going to the Pharisee and the sheep. They love it. They think it's like awesome. So many of us are like, well, sheep are really, really cute. They are very cute, but they are not smart and they are not strong. They're not able to defend themselves, but they're cute. They're weak and defenseless. Think about it. In the animal kingdom, you're either the predator or you are the prey. Sheep are always the prey. They're prone to be picked off by a wolf or a coyote. They can't fight for themselves. They don't have any special powers. They're not like especially quick. They don't even have any like built-in mechanisms to defend themselves like a porcupine would or even like a skunk. They don't even make like a scent, like nothing. They have nothing to help themselves with. And they don't even communicate to each other like, hey, there's an animal coming. You run that way and I'll run this way. What they do is they bunch up. And they're like, take your pick. Whichever one of us, you can take your pick. But they're also not very bright in a different way. They follow each other into danger. There's this true story. You can look it up. It happened in Turkey in 2005 where 1,500 sheep walked off a cliff. One after one 
after another. They walked off a cliff. I know, it's absolutely horrible, actually. But check it out. So the bad news is 400 of them died. The good news is the rest lived because their landing was soft. Like they just kept going one after another after another. And listen, this is true. You can literally look this up. I, I read that and I went, after like the seventh or eighth one, the other one didn't go, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, but they all just kept going off the, you know, off the cliff, off the cliff, off the cliff. They followed each other one after another. And then the last thing sheep do is sheep wander. They're not prone to stay where they are. They're prone to wander. There's a parable that Jesus tells us about the 100 sheep, that 99 were still with the shepherd, but one went astray. And the shepherd left the 99 to go find the one Sheep are prone to wander. They're prone to stray. And so when Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. I really believe he's right. We're very, very similar to sheep. We don't do great on our own, right? If we're by ourselves, we're pretty vulnerable. We were created for relationship with one another. We weren't created to be alone. We get stressed. We get anxious. We get overwhelmed. And when we do so, oftentimes our responses are not the healthiest responses. They're not the smartest responses. Maybe we'll overspend or we'll overeat or we'll overworry. We'll overwork. We won't rest enough. We'll do whatever it takes to try to control it on our own. And then we love to chase things like affirmation and attention. And we love to chase success and status because we want to be liked by the other sheep. You know, we want the other sheep to think we're really, really great. When in reality, where's our perspective supposed to be? We need to have our eyes on Jesus. And so he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity, the sins of us all. Isaiah says, we've all sinned, we've all been disobedient, and he's laid on Jesus all of our sins. Um, If you're taking notes today, I believe that Jesus's love is both intimate and strong. It's intimate and strong. I think in our human form, we think those things almost have to be separate sometimes. We think of it as like an intimate, soft moment, and then it's like a strong, bold moment. But the reality is the love of Jesus works in connection that way. If you want to understand how it works together, look at it like this. He carried the weight of not just a few people's sins, but he carried the weight of the world's sins. So intimately, Jesus knows you. He knows your sins. He cares about you. But his strength comes in when he didn't just carry your sins, but he carried everyone's sins. He carried the world's sins. He was able to process that way. It's profound to me. We have this personal savior, this relational God who loves us more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And the experience that we can have is the same for every person on the planet. God wants to draw near to each and every one of us. It's indescribable what he's done for us. But it says in verse 7 that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah prophesies this 700 years before it ever takes place, yet he speaks in the past tense. Like a sheep he was led, was. Like a sheep he was led. Like a lamb that is led. He was speaking most of this in the past tense. How is he able to do that? Well, because when God speaks something, it is done. 
He's speaking from the past tense, even though it hasn't happened for 700 years yet, because when God promises something, when God says something, it is as good as done. There is nothing more sure or more guaranteed than a word or a promise from God. And so be encouraged today. Listen, if you believe God spoke something to you, if you believe God has spoken something over your life, it has not taken place yet. I do not believe that God has forgotten about it. I do not believe he's decided not to do it anymore. What I do believe is that it will be revealed in his time. Remember, this is spoken. And then 700 years later, it comes to fruition. There's so much strength that's formed in our lives through the waiting. There's so much strength that's formed in our lives through saying, God, you know, I'm going to let you do what only you can do. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to wait for you to move. And all I'm going to do is keep my eyes on you. So this prophecy takes 700 years to come to fruition. 700 years before Isaiah prophesies that Jesus was oppressed, that he was afflicted, yet he takes the pain and the punishment silently. He doesn't fight back. And that's what happened. That's what we read in scripture that takes place later. And it's so important for us, I think, to know the journey of Jesus. It's so important for us to understand the things he walked through because I think we can feel like our human experience is really isolated. And how can this sinless, perfect son of God know about my experience. I don't know about you, but have you ever been, you know, hurt or, you know, left out? Maybe you feel rejected or betrayed and you feel misunderstood. You feel like no one understands those kind of feelings. Well, I believe that Jesus understands very, very intimately these feelings. Let's go back to verse three really quick. We'll jump ahead of where we just were. It says this in verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, Acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you hear that language there? He died for us. He was despised and rejected by men. If you feel left out, if you feel alone, if you feel misunderstood, if you feel like no one gets it, Jesus understands. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There's a story in the Bible where this man named Lazarus dies and Jesus knows he's going to resurrect him. But before he dies, he's overwhelmed and he weeps, and he cries because of what death has done, what sin has done to the human experience. And he's like, this wasn't supposed to be this way. And Jesus grieves the loss of his friend when it says that he's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we're healed. When I read that, I go, it's not fair to Jesus, right? For our sins, for our failures, for our wrongs, Jesus died. He died for us and he gave us peace. His sacrifice gave us healing. I've had so many questions through my life where people have asked, you know, what is this story really mean for me? Like a baby comes in a manger, it's God's son. What does that really mean for me? Or why does the cross really matter? And essentially the question that everyone's getting to is like, why should I follow Jesus? Like why? 
what sense does it make? Like, I just, I need to understand why. Like, it's a good story. It's fine, but, but why? Why should I follow Jesus? I believe this with all my heart, that when you understand the magnitude of the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus, that you'll have no other response but to follow. That when you understand, my words cannot convince you. I don't believe that I'm articulate enough. I don't think there's another human on the earth articulate enough to convince you to follow Jesus. I believe it's a work done by his Holy Spirit that he woos you and you realize, oh my goodness, this God died for me. He's forgiven my sins. When you understand the magnitude of the suffering and the sacrifice that Jesus did for you, I don't believe you have any other response but to follow him. Our only reasonable response is to wholly give our lives to him. Over this Christmas week, please, let me help you try to understand what Jesus did for you, the magnitude of his suffering and of his sacrifice. On the night that he was arrested, Jesus is in this garden. It's the garden of Gethsemane. He takes a few of his disciples with him and he says, hey, stay up with me. Stay awake, stay alert and pray. I need to go over there and pray. But my soul's overwhelmed to the point of death. And it says that he was so sorrowful and troubled that blood dripped from his brow. In extreme shock and trauma, this can happen where the, the capillaries around the sweatboards can actually burst in these moments of intensity. And blood will mix with the sweat and drip down. And so Jesus is experiencing this moment of sweating blood as he's so overwhelmed. And he goes to the Father and he said, Father, my soul is overwhelmed. Lord, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any other way that we can do this, let's do it. And he finishes with a statement that we have to have at all times. But not my will but yours. Not my will, but yours. And as he gets up, gets done praying, he walks back over again. His disciples are asleep. They couldn't stay awake. He's like, come on, man. I gave you three years of my life. Can't you all just stay awake? And so he gets them up and he says, because I'm getting ready to be arrested. Right now, here comes my accusers. And one of the guys that is leading this charge, the man that's coming is a man who betrayed him, Judas, who followed him for three years. Every single day was with Jesus. And he walks up to Jesus and he gives him a kiss on the cheek to symbolize this is the one you need to come arrest. And Jesus is standing there and I imagine even though he knows what this is all about, he has to feel the betrayal that's in that moment, right? He loves Judas. Not past tense loved, he loves Judas. And Judas comes up and presents him with a kiss and he's arrested and he's taken away. And when he's taken away, he's falsely accused of crimes he never committed and he's unfairly tried. He wasn't tried like you and I would be tried today. He was unfairly tried. They had no evidence against him, but it didn't matter. They already had a guilty verdict in their minds and he's sentenced to death via crucifixion. This is a painful, horrible death reserved for the lowest of society, reserved for the worst of the worst. And so they strip him naked in shame is how they're presenting him. They strip him naked and they put a crown of thorns on his head to mock his identity as king. So they put this crown of thorns on his head. The thorns would have been about an inch or two inches long. They place it on his head and they begin to beat him and to mock him and to spit on him and to strike him. And they would have beaten him so much that they would have driven those thorns into his scalp. And it says that they beat him so badly that the blood made him so unrecognizable. And Isaiah implies in one of his other writings that likely they would have pulled on his beard. And they would have pulled his beard out and he was just beaten in a way that none of us can fathom. 
And none of us can understand. And when they got done beating him, they said, hey, here, carry this 100-pound crossbar on your own. And so Jesus, the sinless son of God, walking, carrying this to the best of his ability, 650 yards on this path they call the way of suffering, on the path to Golgotha where you'd eventually be crucified. And we think, man, this is absolutely horrible. This is so painful. This has to be terrible. And he gets to the cross and it's excruciating, right? They nail him to the cross and it would have been about seven inch nails that they would have driven into his wrists and into his feet. And they hang him there. And he's hanging there in the heat of the day, naked, fighting for every breath, weak from the blood loss. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because while that was incredibly painful, it wasn't as painful as what happened when he takes on the sins of the world. See, the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God that he became sin for us. And so the Father is holy and pure because Jesus has taken on the sins of the world. The Father has now separated himself from the Son until this action is done. And the most excruciating part of this process for Jesus is he's never been separated from his Father. No matter how hard it was, in the garden he went to him. This is hard, this is painful, I don't want to do this, but let's do it, right? It's hard, this is painful, I don't know what to do, but we'll do what you've asked me to do, we'll stick to the plan, I'll do it every step of the way. The pain, he's endured the pain. The pain, he's endured the beating, he's endured being hung on the cross. And he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, they offer him the sponge with the wine and the myrrh that's helped all the pain. He says, no, because he wants to feel the full weight of his action. And eventually he yells out, it is finished. Into my hands, I, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And it was done. And he breathed his last breath and the earth shook and the veil was torn. And this excruciating suffering that Jesus went through happened for one reason. So that was what was on the other side of that veil would no longer be separated from his creation that God on the other side that humanity could not access face to face would no longer be separated. It's not because Jesus did anything wrong. It's not because he failed, but because we did. And every single bit of this process is prophesied. It says in verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the, the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus had done nothing wrong, but they made his grave with a rich man. How would they know that Jesus was going to borrow a grave? How did Isaiah know 700 years before it happened that the grave of Joseph of Arimathea would be the grave that's used? Maybe because God's speaking through him to his people. And it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord that Jesus would die. It was the will of the Lord that he would endure this pain so that you and I would no longer be separated from him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. 
and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That's what he did for us. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. What is it that sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions? From Buddhism, from Hinduism, from New Age, from Islam? What is it that separates it? The blood, the death of an innocent victim. Follow me for a second. In the Old Testament, once a year during Passover is what it was called, um, it was this day of preliminary judgment that would take place on the earth. And God would unleash the most unstoppable force as he exercised his righteous judgment on the sins of mankind. And so what could protect you from this judgment? It was the blood of an innocent lamb. The blood of an innocent lamb. So the family would take this one-year-old lamb and they would sacrifice it. They would eat it and they would put the blood on the doorpost around their door, on the sides and on the top. So they would slaughter this innocent, harmless lamb and smear the blood on the house. And if you did that, then death would pass over your door and you would be saved. And I think for some of us, we hear this and we go, that's really confusing. It sounds really unfair. In some ways you could say it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The reality is it foreshadows the cross. It foreshadows what Jesus would do for us on the cross. What distinguishes the gospel from everything else is that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus, Jesus, the sinless son of God, to come to earth, to live a blameless life, to die on a cross so that your sins would be forgiven. He was born of a virgin, not of an earthly father, so he wouldn't have the sinful nature of an earthly father, but the divine nature of a heavenly father. And so he comes to earth, lives blamelessly, and dies on a cross for you and for me. He was beaten so that we could be whole. By his stripes, we are healed. And so my hope is this Christmas, when you visualize the the wise men bringing him these gifts and you think of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, you'd remember that it's the embalming substance, that they gave this gift to Jesus as a child because it foreshadowed what he was gonna do. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by this, but he knew that this is what was gonna happen. He said this of himself in Luke 9, 22 through 23 as we close. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must, does he say you better have your best life now? Things are gonna get really, really easy. Whoever wants to be my disciple better do whatever they want. No, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. They must deny themselves, put to rest your will. Follow the example of Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will, Father. Not my will, but your will. And then you take up your cross, crucifying yourself daily, 
saying, God, rid me of my sinful desires, the things that are not of you. Remove those from me. And he says, and then follow me. And following Jesus isn't a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's not this extra thing we just insert in our life whenever we want to. But it's something that drastically overwhelms and overtakes our lives. As we remember that a baby born in a manger is not just a holy story that we listen to and then we go to grandma's house and we get some gifts and everything feels amazing. And we should feel really good as we celebrate the fact that this baby came us. So our only reasonable response is to give our lives to him. Because I believe that when we see what he's done for us, when he's overcome our lies and our lusts and our selfishness and our sinfulness, our greed and our anger, all of the things that are not of him, I don't believe we can have any other response but to follow him. Because it's good news that we've been saved from our sin forgiven of our failures. That's why the gospel is called the good news, that his son would be beaten, would be bruised, would be crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. So for that reason, I believe for me and for you, I don't think there's any other reasonable response we can have. I'm to say, Jesus, you have my whole life, every aspect. No matter what I'm carrying, no matter what I'm holding on to, God, I give you every aspect. So as we close today, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what's going on in your world, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're up against, keep your eyes on Jesus. And I believe that our God will walk with you every step of the way. Emmanuel, God with us. I believe our God is with you. Let's go ahead and let's pray together. If you find yourself in a place today where you realize, man, God has done so much for me. And I just want to live from a place of gratitude and thanksgiving to him for what he's overcome, for what he's done for me. If that's you, just go ahead and slip up your hand. I want to pray for you today. Yeah, hands all over the room. God, thank you for a group of people who are saying, I want to follow you and serve you. I'm so grateful for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that um, your praise would just always be on our lips, God. Every morning when we wake up, God, the first thing we think of is just who you are. Lord, as we go to bed, we'd find ourselves just thinking on the goodness of who you are. And we'd go to sleep, Lord, just meditating on your goodness. Father, I pray that we devote our lives to you. All of our thoughts, all of our energy, all of our focus, God, would just be given to you as we pursue you and follow you, Lord. Ask for all of this in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, if you're here today and you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. I want to receive the gift of grace that only comes from him. And I want to know this Savior who died for me. If that's you, you can make the decision to be to give your life to Jesus today by just simply slipping up your hand. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be a part of the family of God. So if that's you today and you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow him with everything. Just go ahead and slip up your hand. Meet me eye to eye, and I'd love to pray with you. One, two, three, if you want to follow Jesus today. Just slip up your hand. Well, God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for what you're doing, God, in this church, and I thank you for what you're doing in this season. Lord, I pray this wouldn't be the only time we reflect on how you came and why you came. But, Lord, I pray that we would always give all of our attention, our affirmation, and our affection to you. I ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. 
So we're going to continue today in an attitude of worship, and we're going to do so through receiving communion together. And when you walk through the doors today, you should have gotten a communion cup. If you did not get one, I will have some extras in the back. You can go to the back and grab one. Um, But go ahead and get that communion cup out. We talked about the crucifixion of Jesus a lot today. Um, And the reality is, on the night that Jesus was arrested, he actually gathered his disciples to him and he told them what was going to take place. And he used two pretty ordinary instruments to do so. He said, here's some bread and here's some wine. And these things are really symbolic. Just like the gifts that we've talked about are symbolic, the bread and the wine were symbolic. And so he lays out everything that's going to take place. He said, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be bruised. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to die for the forgiveness of sins. But I'm not going to stay dead. But in three days, I'm going to rise again, proving that I have the power over death, over hell, and over the grave. But he said, as often as you do this, remember me. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. So I want to give you guys just a couple of moments before we receive communion together to remember what God has done for you. Take a few moments and just just ask God to remind you what he saved you from, what he's restored you from, what he's done for you. God, we just welcome you in this space right now, Lord. Lord, I thank you for what you've done and what you're doing. Lord, thank you for bringing back to remembrance all the ways that you've moved in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and on our behalf. Lord, I just pray that all of our attention would be on you as we continue to. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you go ahead and grab the cup, go ahead and peel back that first layer in the bread. And so like I said, Jesus used a couple of ordinary items to explain what was going to take place. And he picks up this bread that's before him. And he said, this body symbolizes, or this bread symbolizes my body. That'll be broken for you. Let's take and eat of the bread. he took the cup and he held it up and he said this blood or this this cup symbolizes the blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins let's take and drink of the cup
And he said, as often as you do this, remember me. As often as you do this, remember me. Remember my sacrifice. Remember what I've done for you. In this Christmas season, I can't help but say, let's come together and let's remember what God has done for us. If you go ahead, stand to your feet. We're gonna sing, we're gonna worship our God one more time. We're gonna lift our voices. We're gonna lift our hands and surrender to a God who's done more for us than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. So Father, we give you the remainder of this time. Lord, we just ask that you have your way. In Jesus' name.